This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Jim Finley, a master of the Christian contemplative way and renowned retreat leader. Jim left home at the age of 18 and studied at the Abbey of Gethsemane with Thomas Merton for six years. He's a clinical psychologist in Santa Monica, California, and the author of Christian Meditation, Experiencing the Presence of God, and the book The Contemplative Heart as well as the Sounds True audio learning programs, Christian Meditation, Entering the Mind of Christ, Thomas Merton's Path to the Palace of Nowhere, and a series along with medical intuitive Carolyn Mace on Transforming Trauma, a seven-step process for spiritual healing. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, I spoke with Jim about embracing our brokenness and the attitude of non-judgmental compassion as a critical part of meditation. We also spoke about the value of spontaneous moments of meditative awareness, as well as false perceptions about the practice of meditation. Here's my conversation with someone I consider a very experienced meditator and teacher of meditation, Jim Finley. Jim, I'm so interested in meditation as someone who's been a meditator now for, you know, close to three decades. And what I'm really curious about is what does it mean to meditate in the Christian tradition? How might that be different than meditating in other traditions? What's Christian meditation? I would say, you know, first I think that if if we speak of meditation in terms of consciousness, then meditation is universal. That is, meditation is the process of entering into more interior meditative states of consciousness that lead toward realized oneness, reunitive consciousness. But each religious tradition has its own vocabulary for that. That is, it has its own a specific way of um, a set of transparent metaphors that kind of express in the specific language of that tradition this universal path. And so I think Christian meditation is a specifically Christian way of speaking of this path of more interior meditative states of consciousness leading to oneness, which is the mystical um, heritage of of the Christian tradition. Now, one of the phrases that you use in talking about Christian meditation in the series on Christian meditation is this idea of entering the mind of Christ. What what might that mean? When the Christian mystics uh, read the Gospels, they saw in Christ kind of the exemplar of this uh, unitive consciousness, this, this spiritual awakening say, analogous to 
the, the, the Buddhist tradition understanding of the Buddha's enlightenment. They saw Jesus as bodying forth this enlightened, awakened state. And what that would mean specifically in the Christian tradition would be, one way to say it succinctly, would be that uh, toward the end of his life, uh, at the Last Supper, actually, one of the disciples asked Jesus, uh, the way it's put in the text is, show us the Father and it'll be enough. That is, uh, let us see God and we won't complain. So let us have this divine kind of seeing. And Jesus said, he who sees me sees the Father. So Jesus bears witness that he realized himself to be the manifestation of the infinite mystery of God. And then Jesus also said that what you do to these least of my brethren you do unto me. That is, he, while identifying himself and realized oneness with God, he simultaneously identified himself with the divinity of all that is lost and broken within ourselves and others. This simultaneous identification of the infinite with brokenness and expressing that identification through love is uh, Christ consciousness, is the mind of Christ. And so the Christian mystic then, where people on this meditative path are asking, how can I habitual, how can I habitually ground myself in this Christ, in this Christ consciousness? How can I habitually experience myself to be uh, the generosity of God? And how can I see that generosity of God and all that is lost and broken in myself and others and respond in love to that. I think that's the sense of it. I'd love for you to talk more about what you mean by our brokenness and how that is a part of the Christian meditative journey. That's not normally something that's referred to when people talk about the purpose of meditation. Um, Traditionally, in the Christian tradition, and I'll, I'll use through two terms that Thomas Merton uses for this, this kind of very classic sense of things, is that in a Christian understanding of ourselves, is that our, our deepest form of powerlessness is our powerlessness to exist by our own efforts. That is, we, we, we do not have the power to bring ourselves in existence, nor do we have the power to sustain ourselves in existence. That, that breath by breath, heartbeat by heartbeat, our reality is given to us by God, who is reality itself. This powerlessness to be without God, who is being itself, giving us our being, this is kind of the amazing quality of ourselves as a gift of God. Then, being the gift of God, we're to awaken to that, which is spiritual awakening, and we're to be faithful to that through a life of gratitude and love. Now, the thing is, for all of us, is that we tend not to be aware of that. And in our unawareness of that, this was Jesus called blindness, uh, the Buddha called ignorance. We act out all these sad and terrible things on ourselves and on one another. And not only that, much to our dismay, we find we're invested 
in these patterns that compromise and violate the God-given gift of ourselves. And so meditation then uh, brings us to this uh, kind of self-knowledge where we, we come to the realization of these patterns where we compromise or violate the God-given godly nature of ourselves and how in silence and prayer we can allow the love of God to infuse itself into our heart and heal us from these patterns. And that's kind of the kind of what Merton called a sense of compunction. It's this kind of pathos of prayer, this kind of tender, heartfelt liberation from the tyranny of our brokenness and kind of learning to live by this love. You know, Jim, I think the reason I'm so interested in this idea of our brokenness and you're talking now about our powerlessness without God is that often I interview various non-dual teachers, people who talk about spiritual awakening, and they don't emphasize this component, this element that you're emphasizing. You know, the emphasis more is just this breakthrough into the power of unitive consciousness without this emphasis on the part of us that feels broken and powerless. And I I think this is one of the unique qualities of the Christian contemplative path. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can even speak more about it and sort of what it feels like in you to touch that part of yourself, that feeling of powerlessness. Well, I'll say it first as it comes to me, let's say, psychologically, and then and, and use that to segue into how meditation is kind of the ultimate experience of this. And I say this probably just out of my own life and out of the work I do as a, say, as a contemplative therapist or working with people who want to bring this meditative dimension into their healing. So I'll start there and then segue into this more classic sense of this question. Is one I think one way to get right at it is that um, that in the process of healing, that um, in a moment where a person risks sharing what hurts the most in the presence of someone who will not invade them or abandon them, they unexpectedly come upon within themselves the pearl of great price. That is, they experience the preciousness of themselves in their fragility. This experience is a very profound experience. That the very brokenness that one tends to be ashamed of, the very brokenness one's trying to get, and well, one should, one should try to move beyond the ways that brokenness um, limits oneself and so on. But the paradox of it is, is that when we lay it bare, in the presence of someone who will not invade us or abandon us, we unexpectedly come upon the already precious nature of ourselves in our brokenness. This paradoxical experience has an infinite quality to it. And I would like to segue over to that into, into Christian terms. In Christian terms, this, there was a great... Uh, Christian mystic recently died in the concentration camps, actually Edith Stein, and uh, she wrote a book of the science of the cross, and she was she was uh, converted to Catholicism and became a cloistered Carmelite nun and was a scholar, 
and uh, and so on. So this is really the science of the cross, and the science of the cross is that when we when we risk opening ourselves to the depths of our brokenness, we discover we're not annihilated, but we're liberated from the tyranny of brokenness over our heart. That it's in the very willingness to taste the brokenness that we discover the divinity of ourself shining through our brokenness. It's true at one level. I think we really do at one level. I know what you're saying about spiritual teachers, and I, I respect those teachings. It's really true. There really is uh, this unitive state and the purity of that state in reaching it. But when we start talking about how it's concretely lived day by day in ordinariness, I think it creates a kind of sublimated or kind of rarefied notion of a wholeness we can never quite get to. But what if I can taste an unexplainable wholeness in the midst of my lack of wholeness? What if I can experience freedom from the tyranny of suffering in the midst of suffering? Or freedom from the tyranny of death in the midst of death? It's like with um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the stages of dying, where she talks about acceptance. She's not everyone comes to acceptance. But someone who comes to acceptance, she says they have a peace the word she uses, it's uncanny. It's not that they're not dying, because they are. It's not that their death is not immensely sad in terms of the people left behind, because it is. But in the very midst of dying, they're liberated from the tyranny of dying. And to me, at least, this is a very kind of rich and kind of intimate and fertile way to kind of understand this whole thing. Now, you, you talked about what this might look like as a spiritual counselor, where somebody's coming to you and, and they're talking about this experience and they're being held in the loving space of a counselor who's neither invading or abandoning them, to use uh, your language. But what's that like in the process of meditating by myself? How, how does this field of acceptance get generated when I'm just alone in contemplation? I'll put it this way. Let me put, put it this way in my own words. Let's say that I'm sitting in a state of a sustained um, childlike attentiveness. That is, let's say I'm sitting very still I'm simply aware of my breathing. And in the awareness of my breathing, I'm kind of resting in a kind of inner quietness. And in that quietness, I directly experience my inability to be sustained in quietness. That is, I, I, I catch myself in the act of slipping off to sleep. I catch myself and getting off into strings of thoughts. I catch myself and a memory comes up and I get off in some little reactive scenario in my head. And I keep returning again and again to this kind of simple intention to rest in this quietness. Now at one level, what I'm looking for is how can I so mature in quietness that I no longer have to be compromised like this by these thoughts and these distractions. 
But what tends to happen in my experiences of this is that in the very inability to get past the frailty of myself, I begin to taste the unexplainable preciousness of myself in my inability to get past the brokenness of myself. This notion that I'm constantly trying to overcome something, get, like, am I lovable yet? Am I lovable yet? Is this good enough yet? This is a subtle form of violence on ourselves. But if I can learn to taste how unexplainably loved and lovable I am in my very inability to get past the brokenness of myself, then there's a kind of surprising freedom in that. That's my experience of it. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Uh, I'm reminded that in your book on Christian meditation, you talk about how the attitude in meditation, the, the attitudinal posture, is one of non-judgmental compassion. Right. You see, because my sense of this is that Say if I'm I say I'm sitting in this quietness, in this sincere intention of realizing this oneness in Christian terms is Christ consciousness, and sitting in this sitting in this um, kind of silent kind of vulnerability, uh, these distractions keep coming up, and half-heartedness and all the rest of it. The thing is, I think what happens is we catch ourselves in the act of perpetuating violence on the part of us that needs to be loved the most. That is, we catch ourselves being punitive towards ourselves in our inability to meditate as well as we think we should be able to meditate. Catching ourselves in the act of being punitive towards ourselves in our powerlessness is really the heart of violence in the world. Or, if we don't do that, the flip side of the same thing is we abandon ourselves. That is, we say, I can't do this, I'm not good at this, um, you know, I can't tolerate having to face this inadequacy in myself, I'll, I'll quit, I'll go watch television, or it's something I can deal with. But if instead, we can learn, say, in our breathing, a practice I suggest to people is that um, to, when you exhale, silently say I love you as an act of exhaling yourself as an act of love to the infinite love that's inhaling itself into you with each inhalation so on the exhalation it's a silent I love you and on the inhalation you're listening to the silent I love you of God breathing into you the gift of life itself so the practice is I love you 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 And in that I love you, I love you, distractions arise within me. And as distractions arise within me, so does my reactivity to myself arise for being so distracted. And I catch myself in the act of being punitive towards myself for being so distracted. So what I do is as I inhale, I inhale this unconditional, infinite love, loving me is unexplainably precious in my powerlessness not to be distracted. And then when I exhale, I give myself distractions and all to the love that gives itself to me as precious distractions and all. And as I do that, 
I'm liberated from the tyranny of distraction as having the power to name who I am. And I discover that love alone has the power to name who I am is unexplainably lovable in my powerlessness. I think that's, to me, in terms of like the intimacy of the meditative experience, this kind of liberation through love this way. That's extraordinarily beautiful. Thank you so much. That's such a beautiful practice. And and I'll share something, too, where I think human love kind of incarnates this. I think there are moments between two people in an intimate relationship in which it's the kind of discussion which is not easy to have, in which one is admitting to the other something about themselves that they find very hard to accept. And it might be some infidelity to the partner, it might be whatever it is, whatever it is. And if if they disclose it in a vulnerable way, they can experience themselves being unconditionally loved by the beloved, as precious in the intimacy of their infidelities. And it liberates them from shame. I'm not saying as human beings we always live up to this. I mean, sometimes we fall short and the partner gets punitive and uh, that's what makes relationships so challenging. But when human love really comes into its own, I think it somehow embodies this meditative quality that I'm talking about uh, with each other. Mm -hmm. Well, what I think is so profound about what you're getting at here is that this, you know, this part of us that doesn't find ourselves lovable is is usually such so difficult to heal and here you are pointing out how we can heal this part of ourself at the core of our meditative practice and at the core of our intimate relationships exactly that's what i'm saying really that's what i'm saying and to put this in specifically christian terms for a minute uh you know, when you really look at the, the, the healing stories in the Gospels, or that someone is blind or someone can't walk or something, whatever, when you really look at the story, kind of at the heart of the story, is that Jesus approaches the person. Jesus sees the difficulty and responds to it. But even more deeply, what he does is that he, in a sense, sees the brokenness, but looks past it into the invincible preciousness of the person in their brokenness. And they are able to see reflected in Jesus' eyes the invincible preciousness of themselves in their brokenness. Joining Jesus in seeing this invincible preciousness is the true healing. So the bodily healing, and theologically in the scriptures, it's seen as a sign of faith. But the healing is not really whether or not in the realm of circumstances we're able to be freed from this shortcoming or freed from that shortcoming. It really, to what extent can we be freed from the idolatry of shame? And how can we embrace the powerlessness that love alone has the authority to name who we are? There's a lovely passage, I don't know where it's from, but someone asked St. Benedict uh, once in the 5th century, like, what do you monks do in the monastery all day? And he said, fall down and get up, fall down and get up, fall down and get up. That the, that the silent life leaves nothing to hide behind. And you're just exposed 
being the way you are. And if you're driven by shame, it'll drive you crazy. But if you surrender yourself to this love that loves you in your brokenness, there is a sense of liberation. Now, you you talked some earlier when we were talking about what it might mean to enter the mind of Christ about Christ and the Father and that relationship in terms of meditation. And, And I'm curious how you see the Holy Trinity in terms of the practice of meditation. Well, uh, my sense really is when you when, when when we read the classical texts of the Christian mystics, uh, you see these constant innuendos and references to the Trinity. Uh, in other words, I, I really don't think it's possible to kind of get inside the language of the Christian mystics without kind of this sense of Trinitarian um, kind of intuitive awarenesses of what they're talking about. And basic, and realize we're now entering into deep water here, not to take on the Trinity here in a few minutes, but just to poetically give a sense of it. Jim, talking to you is always deep water, Jim. That's one of the things <laughs> I like. <laughs> yeah, why, you know, why go into the water if it's not deep? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. life is deep. Life is deep, I guess. Just... So here I'll say it poetically how I, I uh, say to people: Is it in the Christian tradition one way of like this, like this love poetry of the ineffable? Is that God is uh, ineffable, hidden, ungraspable? Like nothing we can say about God is true by the very fact we're saying it. God's beyond that. God's beyond that. So God is endlessly abyss of hiddenness, presence. And this, this birthless, deathless, boundaryless hiddenness is eternally expressing itself or revealing itself as divine relations of knowledge and love. So intimacy is the first manifestation of the unmanifested, that Father, Son, and Spirit are divine relations of unity and distinction and distinction in unity. In other words, that the mystery of being a person is much deeper than being an individual. Because the tradition doesn't at all say that there are three individuals, Father, Son, and Spirit. Rather, they're divine relations of knowledge and love as manifesting this the mystery of the infinite. Is it okay to go on? I'll go on. Please. Okay. God the Father, if it was matriarchal society, it would be God the Mother. But here it says God is origin. That God the Father is eternally speaking himself or expressing himself. And God as spoken is the Word, second person of the Trinity. Or God the Father eternally knows himself. And the the second person of the Trinity, the Word, is in the wisdom of the Father. So there's God as knowing and God as known, that distinction between knowing and being known. Now, the Father and the Son, in their infinite knowledge of each other, there gives rise an infinite love. And the infinite love arising from the infinite knowledge is the Holy Spirit. Now, the thing is, if we were to try to find 
God the Father that is in any way whatsoever other than the Son, we'd never find God the Father because there is no God the Father. Because God in a kenosis infinitely empties the infinity of himself and gives all that he is as the Son. Likewise, if we would try to find Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who is in any way whatsoever other than the Father, we would search and search and search. We'd never find Christ. There is no Christ. Because Christ is in no way whatsoever other than the Father. And so with the Holy Spirit. So this is the triune, unitive mystery of the ineffable. Now where we come in, is the tradition teaches that from all eternity, God the Father speaks himself as the Word, and from all eternity contemplates himself in the Word. So the life of God is a contemplative life. And God, in contemplating himself in the Word, eternally contemplates the eternal possibility of all things. So when God created fire, God did not have to think up what fire might be. From all eternity, God eternally knows what fire eternally is in contemplating the eternal possibility of fire in the Word. This is fire in God. Before God said, let it be. This is fire before the origins of the universe. This is the eternal fire. So in creation, in Genesis, when God says, let it be, God brings into existence in time and space this fire. And this is why we can contemplate fire. We gaze into the flames, and we catch in the flames intimations of something boundaryless. And so with water and trees and stones and so on. So this is St. Francis calling the sun his brother, brother, sun, and sister, moon. That the, that the creatures of the universe are, 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 are siblings. They were all manifestations of this unmanifested mystery that contemplated us before the origins of the universe, uttering us into existence on this earth. Now, the thing about us as persons in the tradition is that we have the capacity to awaken to this. That is, everything is this. The leaves on the trees are infinity manifested. The sun is eternally manifested. The waves are eternally manifested. Everything, this is the God-given, godly nature of all things. What's unique about us is our capacity to realize it. And this is spiritual awakening. There are fleeting moments where it is given to us to taste this oneness, which is a fleeting moment of contemplation. And in tasting it, we can say yes to it, because love is never imposed, it's always offered. And we, in the reciprocity of love, we can choose to give ourselves to the infinite love that infinitely gives itself to us. So here, then, is our Trinitarian mysticism on the Trinitarian kind of a poetic metaphor of understanding the mystical contemplative experience. No, it's, it's interesting that you talked about the spontaneous moments that we have of awakening. And it seems that in your approach to teaching Christian meditation, you, you do place a great deal of emphasis on these spontaneous moments of recognition of using your words unitive consciousness why are those spontaneous moments so important to you 
Well, you know, I think um, my sense is that when people talk about this, that what we're what we're trying to do is to help people through unnecessary obstacles. That is, there's some obstacles that we unwittingly impose on ourselves. And so it's hard enough as it is when we're doing it right. But so we're trying to like clear the brush away and, and like free ourselves up from unnecessary hindrances. And one unnecessary hindrance is this sense of imagining that we're talking about something that is in some way fundamentally above and beyond us. Now, in some fundamental sense, it is. But the paradox is that which is infinitely beyond us is infinitely giving itself away as the very reality of us. That's the unitive mystery, that that which is infinitely beyond us is infinitely emptying itself as the very reality of us, that we ourselves are manifesting this very thing that's infinitely beyond us. So what I try to help people do is to like slow it down and recalibrate consciousness to a more subtle scale where they can begin to realize little fleeting moments of intimately realized oneness. Because they're fleeting and because they're subtle, we tend not to pay attention to them. But a lot of the meditative life is learning how to pause and pay attention to and reverence these simple little flashes and tastes of something. So a moment of smelling a rose or hearing the rain at night or looking at a child playing or sometimes in our heart, like it grazes our heart in the recognition of something beautiful that we can't explain. I'm saying these are flashes of spiritual awakening. So the more we can begin to realize that we're talking about something that's already begun, like we're already participating in it, then with more confidence we can say, well, how can I learn to stabilize my heart in receptive openness to these flashes? So there's a more abiding awareness of the depths of fleetingly glimpsed. And to me that sounds more inviting or more uh, reassuring than notions that we're talking about something beyond us that you know we'll probably no way we can kind of jump up high enough to reach it and that's why i kind of emphasize it it's like this discussion we're having right now insofar as we're mutually genuine in the encounter we can viscerally or intuitively glimpse there's something in this encounter that in some way bodies forth the mystery that we're talking about it's always like much closer than we expect. Now, in your own life, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems that awakening insights occurred in spontaneous ways and that that has been extremely important to you. Is, is that true? That's really true. Yes, that's true. Can you share a little bit with us uh, um, about maybe what some of the early experiences were and, and how that shifted your view of what Christian meditation might really be like, the formal practice, how these spontaneous uh, visions affected you in terms of the formal practice of meditation? Well, I would say, uh, 
just mentioned in passing. I think in in uh, childhood and so on, I, I think there were, as I was just struggling with a lot of trauma that was going on, I think my prayer and my faith um, kind of was actually the first beginnings of getting this sense of, um, this kind of intimate sense of prayer and God and so on. And then I think when I went to the monastery, um, or in this Trappist monastery, which is complete silence, like use sign language, we didn't talk to each other, use sign language, and you weren't supposed to make useless sign language. So I, I, um, I just lived in this, um, like habitual state of silence, and then in the silence and enchanting the psalms and so on, I think that kind of silence is conducive to these subtle little, um, you know, intimations of God in, in, in life and so on. And, um, you know, there was, there was that. And then for me, the big kind of life-changing event for me was, um, which was a little thing, it's one of these things. I, I was at the monastery, and Thomas Merton had gave me permission to spend some time alone in an abandoned sheep barn. And uh, uh, I would go up into the loft of this abandoned sheep barn, and there were the doors of the barn were always open, looked out over this meadow. And it was in Kentucky, it was very hot. And I was walking back and forth saying the Psalms. And um, the experience to me was that... Um, that what we tend to think of as the air is literally God. That I was walking back and forth through God, breathing God. There were no emotions connected with it. There was no images. It was like a matter of factness to kind of the divinity of air. I don't know how to say that. It was just that I was walking back and forth through God, breathing God. And it was clear to me that no matter where I would try to run from God, I'd be running away from God in God that I was breathing and sustaining me. And this air, this oceanic God that I was breathing, like knew me, like through and through and through and through and through his compassion, just endless, boundaryless compassion. It was, a, it was just, I don't know, just no words to describe it. And I, I spent all afternoon like that. I came over to the monastery for Vespers. I chanted I ate dinner that way. I walked around that way for about three days. And on a Sunday, Sundays we were allowed to walk outside the monastic enclosure in the woods around the monastery. And I was walking along this little road, like this breathing God, and there was a little tree hanging down over the path. And I reached out and I touched one leaf of the tree. And I looked up in the sky. There was one cloud in the sky. And I said out loud, I said, it's one that the cloud in the sky, the leaf I was touching, the tree, the ground I was standing on, the God I was breathing, it was all just absolutely, just completely unexplainably one. And I spent all afternoon on a hillside like that. It just changed my whole life. It was just, uh, just I don't know how to say it. It was just, it was absolute for me. It was a like a taste of it. It was still immature, I think, because I... The, the, the brokenness of me kind of came in over it again. I, I've been on a long journey trying to be faithful to that and share it with people. But that that moment, I was I touched the leaf. To me, it's like it, it's so enigmatically how the littlest of things is the totality of reality giving itself away in that little thing. That's 
that was to me is the great insight. And then how does that insight, that experience you had as a young man, inform, if you will, how you practice meditation now in a formal sense? Well, I think what it is for me is that I, as I, I think when I sit in meditation, whether alone or with a group, a meditation group, um, over here at St. Monica's Church, when we're sitting in practice together, I'm sitting alone. What it is for me is, um, well, I think first of all, there's a kind of a, a kind of a, um, a confident uh, clarity that the way I simply am already is perfectly manifesting what I'm looking for. That is, when I'm sitting in my chair like this, and I, I, like I settle in and I look around the room, like the configuration of things in the room is kind of a, a divine mandala. And my tiredness or any pain in my body or whatever it is, there's already a kind of a, an awareness, like a, a visceral conviction that it already is completely manifesting what I'm searching for. So then my practice is one of quieting myself and kind of surrendering to or relaxing into or breathing into this kind of uh, sweet surrender to that, a kind of um, kind of being undone by it or being kind of softly um, uh, identified with it somehow. I don't know how to say it other than that. That's what it is for me. That's beautiful. In your program on Christian meditation, you talk about how you call them five mistakes. Mistakes meaning sort of false ideas you had about meditation and what entering deeply into contemplation would be like when you first entered the monastery. And, and you talk about how these mistakes have to do with the nature of thoughts, memories, intentions, feelings, and the body. And, and I wonder if just briefly you can share your five mistakes and save us the, save us the trouble of making those mistakes ourselves. <laughs> well, I, I mean, first of all, it's very helpful to... I think sometimes we can hear things like this, and th- there is a kind of um, immediate recognition of the intuitive truth of it. But it's a lifelong journey of learning to stabilize ourselves, you know, in the experiential realization of that truth so but to intuitively recognize it's a good start and um so you what, what were they i don't remember exactly thoughts, how I said it there. there were thoughts. thoughts let's start there I'll, I'll i'll cue you up jim but you can okay, say i'll what, start with thoughts okay yeah. i'll start with thoughts as i actually experience it and and it's my sense too of this path as it's actually experienced my sense of meditation my guidelines i suggest to people is to is to 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 sit still to sit straight with our eyes closed or lowered towards the ground, our hands in a comfortable or meaningful position in our lap, slow, deep, natural breathing. And with respect to our minds, what we usually think of as our minds, to be present, open, and awake, neither clinging to nor rejecting anything. That's the guideline. To be present, open, and awake, neither clinging to nor rejecting anything. And with attitude, non-judgmental compassion towards ourselves, as we find ourselves clinging to and rejecting everything like we were talking about earlier. So I want to come back now to present, open, and awake, neither clinging to nor rejecting anything as it applies to thoughts. 
that so I'm sitting, my, my intention is clear. I want to sit, say, for 30 minutes, present, open, and awake, neither clinging to nor rejecting anything. Very soon what actually starts to happen, almost always, is I become aware of a thought arising. And as the thought arises within me, I find that if the thought, if the thought is pleasant, or profound or insightful, whatever it is, I'm drawn to subtly or not so subtly want to cling to it. If the thought that comes up within me is unpleasant or maybe intensely painful, I'm inclined to want to push it away. But if I sit in a kind of equal-mindedness of the thought arising and I'm present, open, and awake, neither clinging to it no matter how pleasant it is, neither rejecting no matter matter how unpleasant it is, I I can watch and observe the thought arising. Now, here's the subtle thing. It's observing the thought without thinking the thought. Often when thought arises, we're so used to thinking our thoughts, we start thinking our thoughts. But with a little practice, we can learn to quietly observe thought without thinking the thought. Sometimes we'll, if we're talking with somebody, I see this in therapy with people too, we can say to a person, uh, you know what I'm thinking right now? That is, we're aware of the thought arising prior to sharing it or thinking about it. So the thought arises, you're aware the thought's arising, you, and as you practice to not cling to it nor reject it, getting caught up in it by thinking about it as pleasant or unpleasant, you can be aware of the thought arising, then as you watch it, you can watch it enduring, and then you watch it pass away. It, it always happens. It always happens. It, it, the thought arises, the thought endures, it passes away. Sometimes it's intercepted mid-course by another thought. And then if you watch that thought, if you just watch it, then that thought endures, it passes away. Thoughts arise, endure, and pass away. So in meditation, we're not trying to stop thinking, which is just the ego again imposing itself upon itself. We're trying to observe thought arising, enduring, and passing away with kind of quiet, graced, reverential awareness. And here's the extraordinary thing about this, where this then is a modality of realizing contemplative union. As the thought arises, I can become intimately aware of the divinity of thought arising. That is, from whence does it arise? Anyone who's had a relative with dementia or Alzheimer's or just anyone who has struggled with uh, cognitive impairments knows what a gift it is to think and what a gift thought is. And we can begin to experience the divinity of thought arising, that is, we can begin to experience God infinitely giving herself away as this thought arising. And we see God giving herself away as thought enduring and as thought passing away. Just like this day is arising, enduring, and passing away. Just like you and I, we're arising, we're enduring, and passing away. So in the observance of thought arising, enduring, and passing away, it opens out upon all reality as God being manifested as all that arises, all that endures, and all that passes away. 
that's been a, a rich and simple experience for me through thought. But in the beginning, I was confused because I thought I was trying to stop thinking, or I thought I was trying to have profound thoughts, or I thought, I mean, all those variables are critiquing our thoughts. And instead, what I learned is I was to kind of reverentially behold thought to experience the God-given, godly nature of thought. And that was my, that was a breakthrough for me. That's very clear and very helpful. Okay, let's, uh, I don't know if we'll get through all five, but let's uh, move on to memories. What was your quote-unquote mistaken idea about memories and contemplative practice? Yes, is that I, 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 I thought again that my goal when I was sitting in meditation, and, and by the way, memories are forms of thought, and in a way all thoughts are memories, in a way, not to go into all that right now, no, but it's a good point, Jim. It's a very good point. It is a good. I think it is. It, it, that I think that, that that I thought again. I was trying to stop memory, so that I could have a pure field of consciousness. But instead, I realized that what I was to do was to be aware of memory arising. If it was sad, I could watch myself being inclined to push it away. If it was pleasant, to cling to it and distract me. But I could learn this kind of art form of watching the memory arise, endure, and pass away. And then I could begin to experience the God-given, godly nature of the gift of memory arising, enduring, and passing away. And this brings about a liberation from my remembering self and all that it remembers. That nothing that happened to me in the past, nothing I did in the past, has the power to name who I am. But my remembrance of the past Viewed with these kind of lucid eyes, I can see the divinity of memory. You know, I think I'm going to let our listeners uh, listen to the audio series on Christian meditation to learn more about your view on intentions, feelings, and the body, what you discovered through the deep practice of meditation. At this point, I just want to make the comment, Jim, that, you know, sometimes I I think I've had this... uh, I don't know if you want to call it a, a bias or prejudice, but that, you know, oh, really the Buddhists are the ones who have really mastered the art of meditation. And Christians, they're, they're better at heartful actions and service, and their specialty is a different part of spiritual practice. But talking to you, I, uh, you've blown that idea to bits because you're, <laughs> you're such a uh, deep meditator and you know so much about the practice and you come from the Christian tradition and I'm just curious what you might have to say about that yeah, that would be a good point to to, to a I think uh, you know Thomas Merton once said he said he said you know there's a lot of people losing their faith and they're losing it in church and he said there's a lot of people leaving Christianity looking for this unitive experience in other traditions and he said the tragedy of it all it's this unitive state of realization we're talking about is the pulse of all world religions, including Christianity. And the scandal of the Church is that it does not teach its own tradition. So you get into this ideology of God, these belief systems and moral, which is fine. I think it helps people live good lives, and it's God's present in it and all of that. But there's so many people that are not aware of this ancient path of contemplative Christianity. And well, I since I was blessed by 
when I went to the monastery, and I saw Merton as a living embodiment of this. And when I started to read these mystics, I just thought it was so, you know, profound. And and then when Thich Nhat Hanh came to Gethsemane and met Merton, and Bede Griffith came from India to meet Merton, and and Abraham Heschel came and to meet Merton on the Kabbalah and the Judaism, and when Merton went to to Asia and talked with the Dalai Lama. There's a sense of a deep mutual respect for the historical differences of the traditions in which each of them came to this unity that transcends and wholly permeates the traditions. So I've been deeply influenced by Buddhism. I mean, the whole sense of the Dharma is very, you know, we could have had the same talk, I guess, in Dharma language. But for me, this kind of mystical heritage of Christian faith, contemplative Christianity, is really, I don't know, there's just, it's just eloquent and simple, and, and I feel, you know, if I, whatever I can do to help people, like, see that and, and be open to that, that's, 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 I feel fortunate to do that. And just one final question, Jim. You know, our program's called Insights at the Edge. And I'm curious for you, in terms of the practice of Christian meditation, what, what's your edge? What's your edge in the practice? My sense of uh, how, how, I, how I put it is this, here's how it makes sense for me to say it, is that when I, when I seek to draw towards what is deepest in my own tradition, I find myself and fidelity to that, like hidden, Merton called it the hidden center where, where everything connects. The more radical I am in drawing close to the hidden center, the more I find myself at the prophetic circumference of what most people expect and understand the tradition to be. That is, I, I think there's a lot of people would listen to this and it'll resonate with them because they're already on this path. You know, it'll ring true. You can tell when you're in the presence of it because it resonates inside of us. But they're just, the, the more radically faithful we are to this, the more we find ourselves at the edge of what we can even begin to explain. We cannot explain this. We can bear witness to it. But we're, we, we become unexplainable to ourselves. See, that's why I think the mystic is not the person who says, uh, listen to what I've attained, listen to what I've realized. The mystic is the one who says, look what love has done to me. See, Merton says, I'm blown down the street like leaves scattered in all directions. Do I, he said, do I even have a life? And being dispossessed by love and scattered in all directions, I feel for me, it's um, that's for me to live at the edge. I, I you know, I just live my life like anyone else, I guess, and try to be faithful to this. I sit with people in therapy, I read these texts, and I'm going to go out and have dinner with my wife here in a minute. And I, and I always feel that there's there's just kind of, I'm always right at the edge of the, like, the, the tender intimacy of this utterly unexplainable thing that's manifesting itself in what I'm doing. And I, I that's my sense of things, I guess. Jim, I have to say, I've, I've found it an absolutely gorgeous experience to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I've been speaking with Jim Finley. He's created a 
six-part series with Sounds True on Christian meditation, also an audio learning series on Thomas Merton's path to the Palace of Nowhere, and in a collaboration with Carolyn Mace, a program called Transforming Trauma, which is a seven-step process for spiritual healing. It's been wonderful to speak with Jim Finley on Christian Meditation, a gentleman who really understands, I think, meditation through and through. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.